I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, journalist Fenton O'Toole joins us to discuss his acclaimed new book, We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland. Fenton lived through a period of dramatic change in Ireland, a once conservative Catholic country that has changed a great deal in the intervening decades since his birth in 1958. He's seen it all from the era of the Troubles to the Good Friday Agreement, and he has a lot to say about what it means to be Irish. In this conversation, we'll discuss all of that as well as his recent foreign affairs piece entitled Disunited Kingdom. Will Nationalism Break Britain? Which deals in large part with the rise of English nationalism and the Little England mentality. We'll discuss how that kind of nationalism is different than Irish nationalism in some ways, as well as a number of other topics such as Brexit and the possibility of Irish reunification in light of Brexit. All that and much more on this edition of Parallax Views. And with that being said, let's get right to the conversation with Fintan O'Toole, author of We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very excited to be speaking with. He's a great journalist and the author of a new book, We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland. I'm holding it up right now uh, for the video version of this interview. Fintan O'Toole, how are you doing? 
I'm doing very well, thank you. And thanks a lot for having me on. So, Fintan, the place that I want to start with this new book that you've written, uh, you know, it's it's not necessarily a memoir, but it, it also does sort of include uh, elements of your life and, and your family's life while telling the story of modern Ireland. So how did you come about sort of juggling those two stories and how do they sort of connect for you? Yeah, so it actually took me quite a long time myself to figure out what I was doing, <laughs> what I wanted to do. Um, it, you know, uh, it, and it was only when I had that sort of the subtitle is a, a, a personal history. Uh, when I kind of hit on that, I, I, I it sort of summed up for me what I was trying to do, really. Uh, because of course the personal and the historic are pretty different things, and and um, it's not a conventional way to to write the history of of a country's transition or transformation, as I'm trying to do. You know, to as you say, kind of use your own story, your own family, your own memories. But I did think that if it was worth telling this Irish story, um, it, it sort of needed to be told as if you didn't know how it was going to turn out, <laughs> if that makes sense. You know, historians whom I admire greatly, but they they, they have the advantage of of knowing uh, where it's all heading, you know, and, and, and looking back on things with a kind of detachment. Uh, and I thought uh, there was a value in trying as much as possible to sort of recreate the experience for people uh, as one where nobody really knows how it's going to turn out and you know it's a, it's it's a sort of complicated ambiguous uh process and therefore as you say to try to tell a story you know so uh, i suppose the difference generally between history and story is that story tries to engage the reader uh at that sort of immediate level of of common shared experience that we all have um and and i I hope, I mean, readers seem to find the book accessible in that sense, you know, that even if you don't know an awful lot about Ireland, it 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 it, uh, it connects with things that in one form or another, most people have had to go through. This sort of gets into a question I had, and it's, it's probably too big of a question. I think in a lot of ways, it's the uh, question that your book is asking. Uh, but for you, what does it mean to be Irish? What, what is sort of Irish identity? Actually, it's a it's a great question, you know, because uh, yeah, I I know it's a big question, but in a way, it's imprinted, isn't it? On well, on on most of us in one form or another, you know, different kinds of identities, but national identities, you know, have this sort of presence that um, in one way we take them for granted, you know, and and in another way, of course, they're always contested and ambiguous and full of things we're very proud of and things we're ashamed of and. Uh, in in Ireland, when I was born, so I was born in 1958. Um, so I'm 65, you know, and, and the Ireland I was born into was a place that had a very, very clear official identity, you know. So, and it was this fusion of nationalism and Catholicism, right? So the state had been only really set up uh, in 1922, came out of a revolutionary period, you know, where Ireland's kind of tried to separate itself from the British Empire, uh, which, you know, had important resonances around the world. Obviously, it will be followed by a lot more exits uh, from that particular institution. Um, and in a way, the sort of tragedy of what happened to Ireland was partition, 
it was part the island was partitioned in in nineteen twenty one. Uh, for all sorts of reasons, you know, because of conflict, but uh, essentially you got a sort of Protestant corner of the island in the northeast, which was also the most urban and and industrial part of the island. <clears throat> that stayed in the in the United Kingdom and is is still in the United Kingdom to this day. <clears throat> and the rest of Ireland, which is the majority of the island, but also the more underdeveloped agricultural rural part of part of Ireland, you know, was the one that broke away. And the the tragedy, I think, was that in a way, although everybody kind of said this was terrible, <laughs> elites quite liked this because in the north, it meant that you could have a Protestant, a secure Protestant majority, which could do whatever it wanted, really, with its Catholic minority. And in the south, you had this overwhelming Catholic identity, you know, so well over 90 percent of people were Catholic. And when I say they were Catholic, I don't mean just, you know, that they ticked a box on a form. I mean, they were, you know, practicing Catholics. It was a huge part of their sense of themselves. And this Catholicism was also kind of like a national identity. It was the thing that distinguished the Irish from the British historically. And, you know, religion can be a very fine thing in itself. And, and politics, obviously, is hugely important. But when you fuse the two, I think you're in trouble. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's a pretty toxic cocktail because it produces an identity that's just suffocating and overwhelming. So there was a sort of sameness and a conformity and an orthodoxy, uh, which had to be unraveled over time in order for Ireland to really take its place as what we might call a modern country. I want to hear talk about the figure uh, who comes up earlier in the book, uh, Whitaker. Uh, could you speak about him a little bit? Yeah, so he's he, he's an extraordinary individual. T.K. Whitaker, he was called, and he was, uh, you know, a guy from. He was actually from Northern Ireland, Catholic from Northern Ireland, but he he you know emigrated down to the south and joined the civil service in uh, the Irish state. But was hugely talented. So by his late thirties, he was really the the most powerful. Uh, civil servant in 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 the state, and by the late fifties, so actually in the year I was born, he had just come to feel that Ireland was unviable. You know, it just couldn't go on. Uh, and the reason he felt this wasn't because you know he was very committed to the nation and the Irish language, and he, he was a very you know devout Catholic, all those kind of things. So he, he wasn't a natural revolutionary, but he he was depressed by mass emigration, you know, which was really what was shaping the place. Um, the 1950s, as I'm sure people will know, was, you know, it was a great kind of baby boom period after the horrors of the Second World War and the Holocaust. You've got this kind of repopulating of Europe and America, and, you know, it's uh, just babies everywhere, there's population rising everywhere. And only two countries in Europe lost population in the 1950s. One of them was East Germany, for kind of obvious reasons. Before they built the wall, they couldn't stop people going to the West. And the other one was Ireland, you know, uh, and they couldn't build a wall around us to stop people. They probably would have if they could, but they couldn't, you know. And people were leaving simply because the standard of living was too low, educational opportunities were terrible, Um it felt like a stultifying place for a lot of women, particularly. So people were leaving. And it wasn't just that they were leaving, but in the 50s, it was quite hard to emigrate to America, which would be the kind of traditional favored destination for Irish people. But 
So they were going to England, you know, and if you've broken away a couple of generations earlier from this uh, oppressive power, you know, and then you find your young people are just leaving in droves to go back into the arms of England, effectively, you know, to, to be English, to raise their kids in England. It's a very depressing and, and really shocking thing. And it, it makes you think about, well, was it all worthwhile? Should we just have stayed in? So, so Whittaker did a very brave thing in, in 1958. He published a document uh, and it sounds as boring as it possibly could be. It's called Economic Development. And it was actually literally gray, you know, the gray cover, you know, no drama, but really kind of revolutionary document because what he's basically saying is, this kind of nationalism, this economic nationalism that we try to do is over. We have to dismantle tariff barriers. We have to invite in capital from abroad and try desperately to you know, create industry in Ireland so that our young people can stay here, so that the state can be viable. Right? And I mean, that in a way now sounds very obvious, but of course it went against the ideology of of nationalism, which was all about, you know, you put up very high tariff barriers and you protect your own industry and you try to develop, you know, Irish produce, you know, Irish factories, all that sort of stuff. But it just hadn't worked. And the reason it hadn't worked was it was, again, emigration, you know. So it's all very well to try to develop your own industries. But if if the market for those industries is literally leaving, right, you know, it's not going to work. And it it, it didn't work. Uh, so, so Whittaker bravely kind of put forward this this plan and it's very interesting looking back at it because it was kind of adopted by the government at the time and but it was like the opposite of those communist um five-year plans you know where they would set these impossibly high targets and and, and brutalize people into trying to meet them and and Whittaker deliberately set the targets really low because he felt the place was so demoralized that actually, you know, it was more important to reach a low target and or maybe exceed it and it would boost confidence, you know. So he started talking about economic growth of 2% a year, which for a very underdeveloped economy was was not that hard to achieve. And it started to grow in the 1960s. You did start to get this foreign investment. And over time, that is what transforms the place, you know. But Whittaker, I think, and the people who supported him, they were kind of betting that you could change the economy, you could change, you know, industry, all those kinds of basic things, move from the countryside to the city in terms of where people lived, and still maintain a conservative Catholic nationalist Ireland. You know, and that's the bet. That's the drama in a way. Is can you change everything else but keep the the same mindset and the same ideology? If we could, I wanted to talk a little bit about. Uh, you know, growing up, your sense of of Irish identity, and I, I remember there's a very interesting point in the book where you talk about uh, being at a mass and, and hearing a very famous composer. I don't want to butcher his name, uh, so maybe you could talk a little bit about that, yeah. and maybe uh, what that meant to your identity, I guess. But, you know, um, when you're a kid, uh, first of all, you don't really know any better, right? So, so you, you know... You, you you exist in the world that's given to you and and the world that we grew up in was one where I felt enormously privileged you know to be an Irish Catholic that was the best thing you could possibly be in the world you know and we were really you know hostile to a very scared of Protestants uh the, there was a little Jewish community near us in in Dublin so we, we kind of knew 
at least that saw Jewish people, you know, and that was the that was the only kind of uh, other that we had, you know. And you know, in some ways, you know, it was very secure and and it had a beauty to it, you know, of course, because so what you mentioned is, you know, when I was, you know, a young teenager, Dublin kids, city kids were sent down to parts of the country where people still spoke the Irish language, you know, so you could learn Irish properly. And the place I was sent to had this kind of wonderful uh, composer who 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 kind of revolutionized Irish traditional music and. Uh, he had a choir, which was just magnificent, you know, this male voice choir. And it was in the Irish language and they were using very ancient tunes, you know. Um, and it was mass and it was, it was you know, devotional, but it was really very beautiful, you know. And it sort of felt like, God, I'm, I'm so glad to belong to this, you know. And within that little world, you could sort of feel that, this is a very ancient culture and it's it's one that has very deep roots and and that you were uh you know you were sort of happy to identify with but of course it was also something of a fantasy world you know because there was a world outside and you know irish people had always gone to that world and had always had ideas in their heads about wanting to just in a way be like everybody else I mean, to have not just everybody else, but particularly like Americans, you know, to have high standard of living, to have good access to education, housing, all those kind of things, the basic things that people want. So, you know, for me, I, there was a kind of romantic phrase in a phase in a way where, you know, it sort of felt like this, this uh, identity was kind of pulling you back into itself. Uh, but then you had to sort of deal with the fact that the other side of it was very oppressive, uh, and particularly, you know, that coincided, I suppose, with puberty and with, you know, thinking about sexuality and all those kind of things. And, you know, the church's attitudes to sex was demented um, and it was reflected in state law. So the state basically did what the church told it to do in relation to all these questions about sexuality and reproduction, women's bodies. So contraceptives were banned. I mean, condoms were banned, never mind the pill, <laughs> you know. Uh, divorce was banned. Obviously, gay rights didn't exist. Um, you know, abortion, of course, was banned, but that was, I suppose, common enough in a lot of societies at the time. But but particularly the the ban on contraception and the ban on divorce really, you know, were, were very oppressive towards, towards women, uh, that they were not supposed to be able to control their own fertility and they were not supposed to be able to control their own destiny within marriage. Uh, and then you had these kind of awful institutions that people may have heard of, like the Magdalene laundries and mother and baby homes where women who fell out of line, young women who fell out of line or were taught, thought to have fallen out of line sexually, uh, you know, were incarcerated in these, in these institutions and essentially enslaved as punishment, you know. So, so the, there was the kind of romance of it. Uh, and then there was the brutality of it. And, uh, I suppose it took me a while to figure out how those two things went together. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think there's, for every identity that exists, I think there's often a um, a mythology that goes with that, that identity. Uh, and, you know, not all aspects of the national identity are necessarily bad, but when you have that romanticization and that mythology, it can sort of blind you to, uh, you know, maybe the harsher realities uh, that, that come with um, a nation state. Uh, could we talk a little bit about you know, I, I think some of my listeners in the U.S. would like to hear about 
the IRA and, and growing up around, you know, the, the time when the IRA was, uh, you know, engaging hmm. in different acts of violence. Um, and maybe we could talk about the uh, events of uh, March 8th, 1966 and uh, your experience with that and, and your mother uh, saying, you know, God, what was that? And the explosion. Let's get into that. Oh, yeah. So, um, so I, I suppose this, in a way, continues what we've been talking about in relation to this sort of fusion of Catholicism and nationalism, you know, because for me growing up as a kid, there we were kind of inculcated in this idea of martyrdom, you know, being being willing to die for Ireland, you know, was 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 a big thing. And it was really equated very much with like Catholic sainthood. Uh, but it, it was also sort of unreal, you know, things had settled down. There was no trouble much in Northern Ireland, you know, uh, until about 1966. So it was all kind of rhetorical and performative. And then, as you say, in, in 1966, I just remember the shock of this where uh, my, my little brother had just been born, you know, and, and uh, my, my mother had this kind of heightened awareness. I don't know, maybe it was to do with having just given birth or whatever, but, you know, she she woke my father up. Uh, and she said, what was that? You know? And he said, oh, go back to sleep. Nothing has happened. You know? And then they heard this explosion, this huge explosion. So she's, I don't know, she intuited it or her, I don't know what, anyway. But it was the blowing up of uh, what was the real, the sort of central monument in Dublin city, right? So it was kind of regarded by everybody as the, the center of the city, you know, the thing that marked the, the uh, James Joyce calls it in Ulysses the heart of the Hibernian metropolis, you know. Uh, but and it was this huge obelisk, which was uh, constructed in the early nineteenth century, uh, in memory of the British naval hero Admiral Nelson. And the IRA, so the fifty, the nineteen sixty six was the fiftieth anniversary of the big rising against the British in nineteen sixteen which is often seen as the kind of founding moment of, of Irish independence, you know, sort of when the whole war against the British started. So uh, splinter groups of the IRA were very unhappy that we were going to be celebrating the 50th anniversary of the 1916 Rising with this big monument to a British naval hero still kind of looming over the city. So they decided to blow it up, you know, and, and that's what the explosion was. And it was a weird kind of event. You know, I, I remember it as a kid because my father took us in, you know, to to, uh, to the following morning to look at the shattered remains of this uh, this obelisk, which was called Nelson's Pillar. And I remember we, we picked up bits of granite, you know, from the from the explosion, you know, and, and took them home. And it was and it was sort of treated as a spectacle. And even as a joke, in, in in some ways, you know, a kind of funny event. Um, even though they could have, there was just sheer luck that it didn't kill, you know, dozens of civilians, you know. Uh, but uh, it it was sort of weird because it 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 just captured this slightly surreal sense of where all this stuff about the IRA and Irish nationalism and everything else was at the time, you know, that you could still sort of treat it like a spectacle or a joke. And then within two years, of course, it was going to become very much neither a spectacle nor a joke because the troubles were going to start again in Northern Ireland. And the IRA was revived then as a as a very serious killing machine. Uh, and so all this stuff that was in my head 
you know, all this kind of romantic nationalism and this sort of appeal of martyrdom, it suddenly all becomes real. And also the same people who've been telling us this as a story, you know, and a nice song to sing and all that, uh, suddenly start saying, well, no, don't join the IRA. Don't, you know, no, no, it's not, not something you really should do. Um, so it, it, it sort of created, I think, for a lot of people of my generation, uh, again, this sort of deep ambiguity about what was it we were supposed to believe. Um, and there was a lot of sympathy for the IRA in, in the early years of the troubles in, in, in the Republic. You know, a lot of people basically felt, well, yeah, they're, you know, they maybe the methods they're using are not really right, but the cause is, is just uh, the British committed some atrocities, particularly what's called Bloody Sunday in 1972, when they they shot unarmed demonstrators in the in, in the streets of Derry. And, you know, there was a real sense of rage in the Republic at that time. I remember my father, who was a very pacific, rational sort of man, but I remember kind of coming home from work and saying to my mother, you know, you got to face the fact there's going to be a civil war and we're going to be up there fighting in the north. I'm going to be up and then my and then the kids are going to be up fighting and, you know, this is going to happen. And so it didn't happen. And people had to sort of withdraw from that mentally somehow, but never really quite resolved what, what was it we were supposed to think and feel about this. I was going to say, it seems like it would have been a very scary time. You know, I, I grew up Catholic, so I'm familiar with uh, certain, you know, very anti-Catholic bigoted figures like, uh, Ian Paisley. And, you know, when I've read yeah. some of Paisley's stuff, I'm like, oh, this is horrifying. He has such a, you know, just completely bigoted view towards Catholics. And I can assume growing up through that era when Ian Paisley was going around as the, you know, big uh, face of hardline unionism, it would have been kind of scary, uh, you know, all these things happening during the Troubles. Oh, you're absolutely right. You know, uh, you know there were there were good reasons uh, for for anger. You know, uh, I mean, Paisley's rhetoric was was disgraceful, absolutely disgraceful. You know, and it was just sheer bigotry and 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 violence. You know, it was Paisley always claimed that he was never encouraging anybody to kill anybody, but you know, he wasn't an idiot. He knew that if you stoked up this kind of very violent rhetoric, it was going to have consequences. So you had Catholics being murdered by so-called loyalist paramilitaries. You had the British government uh, behaving often extremely badly and doing incredibly stupid, provocative things. Uh, and then you had the IRA, which were, were sort of supposed to be like our guys, right? But then they started doing really horrific things as well. You know, um, uh, you know, I, it, it seems to me looking back on it, you know, they made a huge strategic mistake, you know, if they contained their own violence, even if, you know, they just, you know, directed it at British troops or whatever, uh, they probably would have retained very large support in nationalist Ireland. But they started doing stuff like just putting bombs in cafes, coffee shops, restaurants, hotels, dining rooms, bus stations, you know. And this came home to me because the loyalists in, in, in the Protestant loyalist uh, paramilitaries in Retaliation started putting some bombs in Dublin, and one of them was uh, in a side street off the centre of Dublin, where, which was where the uh, the the guys who worked and they were all guys then that worked on the uh, the Dublin bus system, this the public transport system. It was where they had their kind of cafe there, you know, their canteen. And my dad would always be in there, you know, he, he'd have a short break, he'd go in to have his meal or you know, a cup of tea or whatever. 
And uh, he was out at work and, and and we knew where the bomb was, you know, news was coming through. It was just outside that that building. And we knew there was reports of a couple of people killed and, and there was they said they were bus workers, you know. And my dad was out, you know, and I, I never forget that saying of just because this was we didn't have a phone in the house. You know, mo- most working class people didn't. Of course, there were no cell phones, you know, long before that. So you had no way of knowing or contacting, you know, and it was hours and hours just sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting. And then hearing the key in the door, my dad coming in, you know. And I, I never forgot that because you always think like, is any cause worth that? Is is it okay to slaughter innocent civilians like that? You know, and what other families are waiting and waiting and waiting for the key in the door and it doesn't come. So those things really sort of made me sober up a lot about the romance of nationalist violence, you know, and and I think I was typical enough of a lot of people in, in Ireland at that time. I, I want to get more into... Uh how we go from that era of the troubles and and all of this turmoil to uh, i mean eventually the good friday agreement uh, so uh, how does that all sort of evolve and and what was it like witnessing that evolution yeah you know so it's 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 25 years ago now that it it it, it that deal was done and it, 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 so there's been a lot of talk about it and looking back on it you know and i was thinking about it myself you know the the scary thing about it, in a way, is that it wasn't inevitable. You know, people always look back on history and say, well, you know, it was, it was always going to happen. You had all these conditions, it was going to happen. But I, it didn't feel to me like like it was absolutely inevitable at the time. I mean, really what, what, what happened was, uh, I suppose, a couple of big things. One was that the British and Irish governments had been working together very closely within the European Union, uh, since 1973, when they both joined, and sort of trust had built up over time. You know, at the level of officials and diplomats, and 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 then you know subsequently with politicians, and they sort of both realized that if we if we argue among ourselves, there's going to be no solution here. Right? We we have to at least in public develop a joint strategy that we both agree on, and we and we we don't if we if we have disputes we keep them private you know but we, we we keep trying to push for the same things that was a huge thing uh a second really big thing was that uh bill clinton to be fair to him you know clinton is probably remembered uh in all sorts of different ways now you know still a controversial figure but you know clinton really was wonderful for ireland you know he he, he was the first american president to really taken a personal interest in it, you know, feel that this was something that could be done and, and that he wanted to do. And Clinton, again, whatever you think about him, is very, very smart, you know. And and he sort of understood how to play the role of making America kind of honest broker, you know, that both sides could could trust. Um and that was that was crucial. And then the third thing, you know, which the most important of all was that there was a generation particularly in the IRA and its political wing, Sinn Féin, who were beginning to feel not that this had to end, but actually almost the opposite terror, which was that it could go on and on and on and on, you know, because it had reached what one British politician had infamously called an acceptable level of violence, 
you know, if you were in Belfast in those years, it was kind of surreal, you know, because you had this conflict going on. You had armed soldiers on the streets. You had checkpoints everywhere. You were searched before going into a, you know, a store to buy some underwear, you know, whatever, you know, you're, you're, you know, everything was saturated in this conflict. And yet it, people had just become completely used to it. Right. So that was surreal. It's just life was just going on. You know, it was as if nothing was happening. I was going to uh, say then, real quick, I, I think sometimes uh, for, you know, us Yankees here in the U S it may be yeah. hard to like, completely understand uh, what this was all like. I mean, we have songs like uh, Zombie by the Cranberries, but I think a lot of times in America, we we don't really fully grasp what living through this was like. Yeah, you know, and and that's that's perfectly understandable. Um, You know, also, I think if I was American, I would also think, well, why was this so important? Because the death rates in Northern Ireland through the 80s and into the 90s were much lower than in some American cities from from murders, you know, drug wars were claiming and still continue to claim a lot more victims, you know. Uh, So why was this important? And I think, you know, what you've got to bear in mind, and it's hard for Americans because the sense of scale is so different in Ireland than America, right? So, you know, you guys will drive for six hours to go to dinner, you know, <laughs> I mean, uh, and six hours back. You know, um, you can't drive for six hours in Ireland. You go into the you go into the ocean. You know, <laughs> it's like so. Uh, it's a small place, and Northern Ireland is even smaller. And then the communities in which this is happening are are even smaller, right? So, most of the time, if you were middle class or 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 wealthy. In Northern Ireland, you could sort of avoid most of the troubles, right? You you know, it it, it was it was disturbing and it was unsettling, but it wasn't going to affect your daily life that much. Most of the deaths and most of the violence occurred in sort of working class areas where you had Protestant and Catholic communities side by side. So it was the intensity of this that that really I think that's what made the experience so specific. Uh, and then um, that that sort of allied to the randomness of it. So, you know, most of the killing was tit for tat, one person, two people. And then every so often you'd have a sort of particularly horrible atrocity, you know, where 10, 15 people were, were blown up or whatever. And it was that sort of weird mixture of just being beaten down by the regularity of the thing. And then also trying to get your head around these terrible moments where everybody just felt such despair, you know. And it was this sense that, and this sounds a horrible thing to say, but that it's not bad enough to have to stop or be stopped, you know, because it had sort of settled down. Remember, you're talking about 30 years, you know, a whole new generation has grown up with nothing else. And it sort of felt that this could, if this goes to another generation, it could then go on for another 25 years, right? Uh, Because young people, you know, when you're 17, 18, and you want to join up a paramilitary organization, it's very exciting. You get a gun, you get, you know, power, you get all that kind of stuff. And I, I remember in, say, 1993, 94, uh, if you spent time with people who were, you know, involved in the IRA, for example, you visited them in their houses and you realized now they've got kids. You know, now their kids are... 16, 17, 18, you know, and the question is, is my kid going to follow in my footsteps, you know, and and if they do, how am I ever going to tell them that that you can stop, you know, 
So it was this terror, actually, that this this thing, this obscene thing could just go on and on and on. So you got a generation of, of leaders who were getting getting old in the IRA, people like, well, Jerry Adams, Martin McGuinness, who'd sort of been with it from the start, you know, from 1968, 69, 70, uh, had been through the whole thing. And we're just kind of feeling if we don't do this now, then it could just go on and on. And maybe there is an opportunity to do it now. So, you know, the, the, the Cold War was over. There was some sense of optimism around. There was a willingness on the part of America, Britain and Europe to put a lot of effort into trying to solve the Northern Ireland problem. And it's a great example of, well, seizing the day. You know, when the opportunity is there, you have to take it. And and we're fortunate that enough people did take it, that actually that peace deal, for all its qualifications, has pretty much held. You know, it, it's really interesting because I think it gets into one of the main themes of your book. Uh, you mention a lot in the book this idea of doubleness, and you also mention the yeah. idea of you know, the unknown knowns. Uh, could you talk about those themes and how they run through uh, the story of modern Ireland? Yeah, so I suppose in trying to tell a story like this, you 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 want to have some kind of um, some themes to hold on to or, you know, and the one that's always occurred to me is, uh, well, it goes back to Donald Rumsfeld, you know, 20 years ago before the invasion of Iraq, talking about uh, the, the unknown unknowns and the known unknowns you know and I, I always felt well he missed the Irish one which was the unknown known you know the thing that we know but have a capacity not to know you know and a lot of this goes back to what we were talking about earlier really to this this overwhelming uh Catholicism and you know Catholicism as an identity and I should stress by the way I'm not at all critical or being critical you know I'm not trying to undermine anything to do with religious faiths here. It's not really about that. It's about how this becomes a sort of overwhelming political identity and a force for social control. But the the, the biggest part of this unknown known thing, you know, was that I think this Catholic identity became a sort of compensation for failure, really, you know, for the fact that the state wasn't working, that it was still very backwards, that it was still relatively poor, and particularly that people were still leaving in huge numbers. So how do you compensate for that? Well, you kind of invent a version of yourself, you know, which is that, yeah, we may be poor, but that's because we're very spiritual. <laughs> you know, uh, we, we we may be failing, but that's because we don't value the material world. You know, we we're, our eyes are on higher things, you know, and we're the holiest people, you know, we're the best Catholics that the world has ever seen, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and of course, this is never true, right? It's never, you know, that those those self images are always kind of ludicrous, but they were maintained as a, you know, we were talking about earlier by by this, these very repressive sort of mechanisms, but also by um, just you know pretending not to know that uh, actually most Irish people had the same desires and the same faults and the same sins. Uh, and the same good qualities as everybody else. You know, we weren't particularly exceptional. Uh, and I mean, some of this, the, 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 there's a very dark side to it, you know, which is which is these institutions I mentioned, you know. So in order to maintain this special image of yourself, of course, you have to get rid of or hide away the, the people who don't fit. I, I was going to say, does that tie into... I, I know when we're talking about Catholicism, there's been child abuse scandals. I think yeah. you mentioned one, uh, Father McNamee, um, 
in the book and that sort yeah. of gets covered up in a way. Yeah, you know, so so I mean, the, yeah, I, I think where all of this really does come to a head, you know, is is to do with child abuse. So child abuse was rampant within the church, you know, and I'm not for a moment saying that the majority of priests, you know, were were involved in it, but a significant minority were, and more importantly, in a way, the bishops were very involved in covering it up. Right. So where I grew up was a sort of working class uh, suburb of Dublin. It's kind of built in the 1930s, 1940s. Huge kind of, you know, everybody was Catholic and you know, there's an enormous Catholic church where I used to serve mass. And, you know, and and one of the one of the local priests, for example, uh, well, just I'll tell you two things about him. One is he built a swimming pool in his, in his back garden and made it clear that only prepubescent boys were able to were, were allowed to use it you know and that they didn't need to bring any um any swimming clothes you know mm. i mean you know like this and then the same guy would would turn up at the at the school you know primary school you know with a, an italian sports car and you know i mean during the day you know and and ask kids to get into his car and go for a drive you know i mean this sort of flagrant behavior the problem was everybody knew this, and yet nobody could articulate it or knew what to do about it or how to just how to handle it, you know, because if you were a kid and you were abused and you told your parents, the likelihood is they would beat you for lying. Uh, but even if they believed you, where were they going to go? So the obvious thing is to go to the police, but we you know, and I described this in the book. I mean, when the police Found out about this sort of stuff. They went straight to the Catholic Archbishop, you know, and said, "Would you would you deal with this, please?" You know, and he said, "You've done exactly the right thing. Don't worry, I'll deal with it." Or they went to the bishop themselves, you know, or parish priest bishop, who said, "Oh, don't worry, we'll deal with it." Yeah, and you know, we're terribly sorry about this. But how they would deal with it, well, was maybe do nothing, and then if it got really, really bad, and there were too many parents coming forward, they would just move these guys around, right? So they'd move them from one parish to another. Which just gave pedophiles a, you know, a whole new, uh, a whole new source of 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 predation, and they did this year after year, decade after decade, um, and it all relied on having this kind of mentality among the public, you know, the unknown known, you know, that this was a known that was would remain officially unknown, but there's only so long you can do that, you know, and and eventually. That dam burst really at the end of the 20th century, you know, beginning of the 21st century. And and when it does burst, it 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 drowns the church. You know, the, the Catholic Church in Ireland now is has lost pretty much all of its political power. It's lost a huge amount of its support. Um, so Ireland is no longer really, in that sense, a Catholic country. And that's an incredibly dramatic thing to have happened. Uh, but a lot of it's to do with their own corruption. Real quick, I just had two more questions. Um, with regards to Catholicism, it's interesting for me. So I grew up Italian Catholic, um, and I was, you know, I've been influenced by different Catholic thinkers uh, like, you know, Dorothy Day and the Catholic Workers Movement, uh, the Berrigan Brothers, who in, in addition to their anti-war activism, uh, you know, did pastoral care for AIDS patients. So I, I think there's value I've found in my 
Catholic upbringing. But then there's also that dark side, that side of, you know, conservative sort of social control. Uh, have you ever thought about like those two conflicting elements of Catholicism? And maybe do you have any thoughts on it? I'm just curious. Oh, very much so. You know, uh, you know, to, to me, the great sadness actually is that the the first side of that gets lumped in with the second. You know, uh, I, I mean, I think the, there are uh, extraordinarily creative and progressive and courageous energies that come through Catholicism. Uh, you know, as you say, some of the some of the greatest social activists of our time were and still are. Uh, motivated by their faith, and I, I've, I have enormous respect for that. Um, and I just think they've been betrayed over and over again by so much of their leadership. You know, um, betrayed by first of all the obsession with controlling sexuality. You know, the the idea of making one's views about about you know contraception or abortion or sex in general the issues on which you define your your spirituality you know uh, seems to me to be an, an immense historic mistake and of course the other the other betrayal is is the covering up of of child abuse because of course it's not just in ireland it's you know it's a story which has repeated itself in america and around the world and um you know has has i think made it very difficult for a lot of people who want to be involved and want to trust the church um, to to get back to just that really basic idea of of of, of communion, of belonging, of trust, of, of sharing. Uh, you know, it's not clear to me whether in at least parts of the West the church is going to recover from from that catastrophe. The very last thing I wanted to ask you about because uh, I saw you wrote a piece in uh, Foreign Affairs, Disunited Kingdom. Will nationalism break Britain? And you sort of talk there about uh, Brexit and also the rise of this sort of little England uh, mentality, uh, you know, English nationalism. Uh, could you comment on that? And how would you say, what can we learn from your book? Uh, we don't know ourselves when it comes to this rise of sort of little Englander sort of mentalities. And uh, what does Brexit mean for the future of Ireland? So, um, I mean, you're you're right. You know, the the uh, one of the only good things about being sixty five and being Irish, you know, is that we we've been through a lot in terms of nationalism, right? And trying to understand and the good sides and the bad sides and the and the surreal sides of 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 national identity and how you how you define that. And the one thing I think we, we've sort of collectively had to learn is that nationalism is about us and them. And if you don't know who the us is, you're going to say, well, we're not them. <laughs> That's the easy the easy way to define yourself. To go back to your original question about identity, you know, is to define it negatively. Say, well, we're not that. You know? And for all sorts of reasons, I think both traditions in Ireland have done that against each other. You know, we're not those Protestants. We're not those Catholics. You know, uh, we're not those British, you know, whatever. Uh, which is all very wild, but it doesn't really get you very far. Right? And, so, and so I think a mature country and a mature identity is one that actually starts to think about the us part. Well, who who are we? You know, what do we want? What's our what's our collective values? And it's been uh, somewhat uh, depressing, I suppose, to watch some of these same things playing out in both America and Britain, 
countries of which I'm very fond, you know. Uh, and Brexit really was the resurgence in in England, particularly, of a sort of English nationalism which has never really articulated itself in positive terms, you know. Argument has never been allowed to, you know, because it was sort of folded into Britishness and into the empire and all that stuff. Uh, and we'll see this again with the coronation of King Charles and, you know, all that sort of, um, you know, well, I think invented tradition, <laughs> we might say. Uh, but, you know, at the core of this, there's an English identity, which is there's nothing shameful about that or nothing, nothing, you know, historically weird about it. Most countries should have that. But it's never really articulated itself very well. And it was given the chance in 2016 to do the, okay, we don't know who we are, but we know who we're not bit, right? Which was say, well, we're not European. We're not, you know, part of the part of the, the EU. Um, and I was, I suppose, one of the people who was not particularly surprised by the Brexit vote. I, I you know, I just thought because of all these circumstances, that's that's was likely to 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 uh, to lead to Britain leave, leaving the EU. So you still have this, but the, the problem with leaving the EU is it doesn't resolve any of these questions about English identity. You know, the, the the not them stuff, it's kind of gets you so far, but then it falls apart, right? And I think it's, I, I was going to quite... say real quick, not not to interrupt you, but it, and maybe you'll disagree with this, but I, I can understand uh, having a nationalism when you're being maybe oppressed by another nation, like a national liberation type thing. But at a certain point, yeah. when you become a mature nation, it, that becomes uh, a detriment rather than, you know, something positive. I couldn't agree more, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, Irish nationalism is fueled by a, a genuine sense of oppression historically, right? You know, uh, um, but British nationalism, English nationalism, they're all tied up as I say, with 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 actually the opposite, with domination, with superiority. So one of the deep, deep problems for uh, for for a certain kind of English mentality, right, is that uh, the problem with the European Union was we were being oppressed because we were not being recognised as superior. <laughs> you know uh, that that actually just being an equal, just being the same as all these other countries somehow isn't good enough you know if you've got this this backwash of empire you know in your head and uh that that stuff i think does play out but also it's useless right so why has brexit in a way turned out to be just a bubble you know so it's this very consequential thing and they've done a huge thing which is going to last of consequences for a generation but they don't even want to talk about it anymore it's like it's gone you know as a political project and the reason is, of course, because when you've done the not them thing, you're you're back to the us thing, and it it doesn't help, you know. But also, as 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 you were suggesting, the problem is that a, a revolution, you know, has to actually be able to do something, or has to be able to change something, and and Brexit doesn't. It, it, it's you know, it's because it's based essentially on a lie, which is that Britain was being oppressed by the European Union. And therefore, if we throw off our oppressors, we're suddenly free. You know, Because it's based on a lie, it, it, it just doesn't actually make anything happen. The line I've used consistently about this, you know, is that if you throw off imaginary oppression, you end up with imaginary freedom. And I think that's where they are now. It's certainly going to be interesting because I know you've talked about this before, but I mean, this could it 
you know, this could mean something for Northern Ireland uh, and even possibly reunification at some point down the line. Yeah, I think the direction of travel, I mean, I, I don't think a, a, the reunification of Ireland is going to happen quickly, and I don't think it should happen quickly because I don't think we're ready for it. But I think the direction of travel is increasingly clear. You know, um, I, I don't think over the medium term, like we're talking about the next 20, 25 years, uh, unless Britain, the UK radically reforms itself, I don't think it's going to survive in the form it has now. I just think the tensions are becoming way too deep in, in, in terms of Scotland, in terms of Northern Ireland, even Wales, you know, has an increasingly assertive national identity. Um, and these are countries that, you know, still want to be part of the, the European Union. Exactly, exactly. So, you, you know, one of the strangest things that happens in Europe, really in... I suppose it started to happen in the late 80s, early 90s, right? Was that small nationalisms started to realize that the European Union was really good for them, right? So if you go back to the 70s, 60s, 70s, almost all nationalists, you know, small nationalists, particularly, you know, smaller nations were bitterly opposed to the European Union idea because they thought this huge steamroller is just going to come in and flatten out our national identity. And we, you know, it's even worse than than the current situation we have. Uh, so Irish nationalists would have said that, Scottish nationalists, Welsh, whatever. Uh, and then gradually, as the European Union expands and expands and expands, it becomes the most extraordinary and is a new thing, right? Which is this hugely multilingual, multicultural, um, you know, multilateral institution that actually can't impose any single culture on anybody, right? You know, do you think the French and the Germans are ever going to agree on a single European language, which is, you know, no, I mean, and, and you know, when you've got 27 member states, when it's expanded so much into Central and Eastern Europe, into Southern Europe, uh, you suddenly realize, you know, if you're, if you're Irish, I mean, it's a very good example. We started off really talking about this idea whether Ireland was viable, you know whether Irish independence was was viable in the modern world, and and uh, that question is no longer even being asked. And the reason it's not being asked is because uh, Ireland's a member of the European Union. You know, it, it it makes absolute sense to be an independent country because you get your your equal uh, footing within this really powerful organization. And if I was Scottish, I would be looking at Ireland and saying, "Well, hold on a minute, they've got you know." full equal membership of the European Union with Germany, you know. Uh, how come we in Scotland, you know, who wanted to stay in the European Union can be just dragged out of it against our will? And and even when we were in it, you know, we, we had to do everything through London. Uh, so the European Union in a funny way sort of validates small nations uh, and their identity. Certainly that's what's happened to Ireland. And I think that logic combined with Brexit and combined with all the institutional problems of Britishness uh, do very much open up that question as to whether the UK is going to be going to be around in a few decades time. And of course, that has huge implications for Ireland, yeah, because the only place for Northern Ireland to go in that, in that case is into a united Ireland. Um, and I think that's something we need to be talking about now, planning for, thinking about and trying to think about how would you do that as generously uh, as as openly and as peacefully as possible. Well, I, I kept you a little bit over time here. I apologize for that, but I want to thank you so much for coming on Parallax Views to discuss 
We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland. Uh, I hope listeners will check it out. We couldn't even get to the uh, uh, Muhammad Ali story that shows up in the book, but (laughs) I I will let listeners uh, read the book to hear about that. Thank you so much, uh, Fintan O'Toole, and uh, anything you hope uh, that listeners got out of this conversation or that they get out of the book, what's the one thing you hope they get out of it all? I hope, actually, oddly, that they they get some sense of optimism. You know, um, I, I think Americans are in a pretty dark place now at the moment, in despair about politics and democracy and social change and all those kind of things for good reasons. Uh, but actually, the Irish story, you know, we started out in a pretty dark place too. And and I'm not for a moment saying Ireland is perfect at the moment, but it really is a hell of a lot better place than it was. It's a more open, tolerant, liberal democratic society, I think, than than it was when I was born into it, and actually for a very long time since. So I think it maybe does give some hope that there are positive stories there as well about politics. Thank you again, Fintan O'Toole. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Fintan O'Toole, and that you'll check out his book, We Don't Know Ourselves. A Personal History of Modern Ireland. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerry Mike you to parallax Jerry with Jerry The way out is not simply to say don't do it. That's to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.